Hello, you're listening to a spoiler-filled film conversation. Hooray! It's the sort of trust. Oh, sort of trust. Yeah, sort of trust this week. Uh, I'm Richard, hello. With me to do a film chat is Abby. Hello. And Anthony. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm alright. Good. Abby? Eh, I'll do. Good. Welcome to Conversation English, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I selected this week's film, so I'm going to dare to give the details. I think they're mostly names I can pronounce. <laughs> safe. Uh, but yeah, The Sword of Trust, in case... I mean, there shouldn't be... There's The Sword of Doom, that's a samurai film, it's not that. That's got the word doom in it, not the word trust. That's the clue. But there are other sword films. Plenty of sword films. But this is the trust one. And it was directed by uh, Lynn Shelton. It was written by her and uh, Michael Patrick. It stars Mark Maron, John Bass, uh, Michelle Watkins, Gillian Bell, Toby Huss, and and Dan Bachtel. Um... It is essentially about a lesbian couple who inherit a sword, take it to a pawn shop, and then, with the help of the guy who runs the pawn shop and his uh, shop assistant, uh, attempt to sell the sword to some conspiracy nut southern people who believe it is the sword that was you was handed over by uh, the traitorous northern aggressors uh, to the... Oh, well, anyway, we'll talk about it in the film. This is essentially about trying to sell a sword um, and and how that can go a bit out of hand sometimes when you're dealing with uh, conspiracy-minded people. Is, um, is the term sword of trust like a saying of, of some kind? I don't know. Because I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's a really... Like, it's, it's, a... it's an odd title for the film. <clears throat> Yeah, they use the word truth a lot, like uh, in the film, referring to the truth of the history books, uh, or the truth, of, you know, that's the real truth, if you, if you will, of of uh, the origin of this sword. But yeah, like they, the word truth gets bandied around around a lot. Uh, but there's also, I guess, the trust of do you believe, you know, someone running a pawn shop? Do you trust people you're selling it to? That, so it's sort of. The trust element is in the film from that. So, but yeah, Abby, have you heard of the phrase the sword of trust? Is there a common practice that you're aware of where people hand over the sword of trust when they surrender or something? It's not something I've heard of before, but I can't say I'm particularly okay with sword terminology at the same time. <laughs> so true. Yeah. No, so I don't know. It sort of sounds like the sort of stupid word... It sounds like the sort of phrase you might chuck into, like, uh, ceremonial surrender, but, you know, I never heard it used in real life or anything, you know. Okay. Maybe it'll become more popular that there's a film with it in. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I guess I should say why I picked it. Um, pretty simple. I like Mark Maron. I think he's a good comedian. And uh, I think he's proven himself a good actor now. He's you know, he's done his own uh, sitcom and the film Glow, uh, sorry, and the TV series Glow about uh, the glamorous ladies of wrestling. 
that was uh, that was on uh, Netflix and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I've been a big fan of his comedy for for a good while, and he's got a half decent podcast as well that most people have heard of. I guess it must have cropped up because of because uh, of that. And I know that his her, I guess his then partner is the director, and she sadly passed away uh, fairly recently after making this film. It's a pretty hard time for Mark, I guess. And uh, I'd seen it before that, though. They'd seen this before. They had like a sort of swan song vibe to it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I liked. I've watched. The, uh, what are some of the other films I've seen of her? I think there's a film called My Sister Sister, like a, a sort of comedy drama jobby. That's not too bad. Um, fuck. There's a. There's another one I've seen of hers. Uh, but yeah, you know, just liked it. There was no... Oh, uh, the film Laggies, which has uh, got a different title in Britain, which I don't know what that is. It starts with S. Something very generic sounding. Anyway, that was just about a woman who hadn't grown up yet, so that was kind of interesting film as well. Um, yeah, I've also, you know, in the, in the pile of to-watch films, got a film called Hump Day, where I think two heterosexual men are in some way convinced to have... A three-way or something? I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. But I liked her style. Uh, her comedy uh, films uh, I've seen, I've enjoyed. So that's it. It's just liked it. It's not uh, a trick or anything. Hey, you are allowed to say you just liked it. Yeah, I feel like though usually our approach is, well, I had problems and I needed some help to her. I needed either more people to suffer like I did or... <laughs> You know, I need help understanding whether this is good or bad, which is usually the criteria for our podcast. Or the other one where it's like, I like this film, but I know you're going to rip me for it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, so, the, yeah, that's it. Uh, had you heard of this before, Anthony? No, this was uh first time for pretty much everyone apart from um, uh, Mark Maron, um, who I have seen, like... Do, I've seen like his stand-up mainly. Um, I did. I did watch a couple of episodes of Glow, which was were pretty good. Uh, but other than that, like totally coming into this blind, uh, unfamiliar with the film, directors, everyone involved with it. Um, from the trailer, it looked like a kooky comedy. Not kooky, but um, what's the word? Yeah, just like a low-key. Comedy. More your kind of Chris Guest style stuff, where it's vaguely improvised and about how people are a little weird if you think about it too long, that kind of thing. Mm, it, it did feel like there were some bits where I was like, like that was probably improvised. Yeah, I think it's playing to the strengths of the uh, actors. I think this director does do like her stories are partly improvised sometimes, but um, you know, the, the actors are the type that you know their comedy chops are there, so they can. You know, sort of take the scenes different ways depending on what you know, what works or doesn't. So, but just vaguely positive, thinking, oh, this might be alright. No big alarm bells or prior expectations, really. No, no alarm bells. Like I, I was expecting coming in having a fun-ish time. Sure. Um, what about you, Abby? I know you, uh, you and I have seen some of the stuff of. Uh, Mark Maron together, so I know that. But uh, what were you expecting? Well, I'd heard about it through you, so I had a fairly good, like, general sense of it. But I 
you can't really explain a tone to someone. Mm. So that I wasn't not prepared for. It makes it sound like a bad thing. It's like a really good thing, but it's not something that you can prime someone for. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see people being put off by the fact that this film is not about anything too glamorous. Like it's a fairly, you know, I wouldn't say slice of life because it isn't fully like the, the average folks' lives shit. It's more just a quirky little look at the... I guess they get the world of conspiracy and people, the you know, people who are interested in conspiracy wanting to sort of ogle what nut jobs look like and therefore get embroiled in uh, the more dangerous world of it. But um, yeah, it's a fairly normal, like low energy comedy. I wouldn't say it's like you know, it's not like a big gag fest. It's more the like like odd reactions and funny things and observational comedy more than. Uh, Anything, other, lots of anything else? Really quiet little observations about people that I really like. Yeah. And just, it never quite goes where you think it's gonna go. Yeah. Yeah, because you you know, normally you know it's gonna probably. I mean, the sword of trust could be metaphorical, but. It, you probably get a good understanding it's going to be about a sword, but you don't know if this is a sword that's going to get whipped out and start killing people, or if it's just going to be like a fucking like hidden, like a treasure thing, or you don't, you know, who knows? But it's essentially about trying to graft a bit of profit out of uh, an antique. Um, yeah, I guess we just if we go through it, Abby, you've got some notes and stuff, and uh, you can flag up whatever you fancy, talk around the subject a little bit, see what we think. Uh, actually, sure. opening question for you guys. Are you uh, anyone conspiratorial-minded? I mean, because that's the thing. If you watch this, you might feel a bit mocked if you're into heavy conspiracy theories. And a lot more... Conspiracy seems to be being all lumped together these days. There's a huge news focus on conspiracy theorist people. And they, a very small percentage of people actually are full-on nutjobs. Sorry, given the game away, I'm not conspiratorial-minded generally. Abby? Depends what kind of conspiracy you're talking about. I don't know. Uh, moon landing was fake. 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, you know, pick or choose whatever you want. <laughs> I think, politically speaking, I don't trust the government to not do just about anything. <laughs> sure. <laughs> In terms of science, like, you no, know, if it's proven science... It's, that's what's happening. And then when it comes to, like, unexplained events, I have an open mind. Yeah, so you're, like, you're not going to shut down any notion of uh, aliens per se, but you'd need proof to sign off on it. Hmm. Yeah. And then, but, you know, you, you'll buy into the regular conspiracy that people in positions of power conspire against the majority in order to fill their own pockets with wealth, usually. That's like a fairly... That's like, people do conspire. And some conspiracy theories can be true. Because, you know, if no one conspired against each other ever, then we'd all live in a utopia. Uh, what about you, Anthony? Are, you, are there any, like, well, actually, Rich? I've always thought that Atlant Atlantis is real. And that one day we're all going to go down there and live forever in Atlantis. Or anything like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, maybe not that. I mean, there must be. I mean, you know, most people are willing to believe something that's a little more outlandish. You know, you know, twist someone's arm to admit they believe uh, in ghosts or what's uh, a fairly plausible. You know, you like. Uh, I don't know. What, what is it? I don't know if there's any sort of conspiracy that they might entertain the idea. Do you reckon the uh, you know ancient aliens built the pyramids or Sasquatch is real? Nope. Messy. And you've got the thing that I, I have as well, where it's, you don't so much believe the conspiracy, but you really like it as a story. Yeah, pretty much. I like. Uh, I, I will admit I've seen conspiracy theory stuff, and I, I guess because, you know, it's wrapped up as a mystery kind of thing. That's always appealing to people, isn't it? Just like mm. a, a mystery. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do remember watching like a like a how the moon landings were fake kind of thing before and the way they do it is you know they make it seem very plausible that they're telling the truth and i you know i, I admire that i suppose <clears throat> as a way of filmmaking i mean it's you know it's technically very immoral but you know, they've, they've set out to do to make a point and they they do make a point but no i mean I don't know, maybe maybe back, you know, in my teenage days, maybe I could have bought into a few of them, but uh, I don't know, I've become too cynical. I don't believe anything. I think I, 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 I even... Like, if I was going to say something, yes, maybe some political stuff, I can, you know, the people involved are usually not the best people, mm-hmm. and if I was going to believe something, it would be that. But even then, I'd be like, well, it's probably just a set of, you know, circumstances and the certain people being in certain positions at a certain time kind of thing, rather than a, a grand conspiracy. Yeah, we just short, shorthand it to dicks be dicks. Yeah. If you were in a position where you had a lot of power and money, you'd probably do it as well. Yeah, you don't need to get as far-fetched as, like, David Icke type shit with lizard people controlling the world and 5G interfering with things and vaccinations having fucking shit in them that's going to control you, like Bill Gates because there's something, something, whatever. You don't need to get that far. <laughs> you could just be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, some pricks did a thing and that fucked everyone. That's fine. <laughs> like, Pedophiles exist and do stuff that's awful. They exist, sure. That's awful. Uh, as is, you don't need it to be a big, you know, liberal media elite are all up to it and, you know. Mm. Enough of them are, <laughs> but like not, you know, you know, the whole world is geared towards this shit. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I think when it comes to these things, um, it's very alluring, and I think the the boring thing now is with mm. like QAnon and, um, I guess anti-vaxxers is is one of the new big fucking things, and they they kind of they're too outlandish now. Like I don't mind uh ancient aliens or a fucking you know, crop circle, something something that's like fucking... Ancient aliens isn't too outlandish for you. No, 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 when it's like, oh, we found this weird shit, and it's like, oh, that's weird, it's co- so the coincidences of uh, Egyptian paintings suggesting some technology that couldn't exist, you can, there's a sort of, oh, cool, that's fun, but now you, you expect me to believe people like Donald Trump are going to save us all from the paedophile children's blood drinking, like... <sighs> an artifact being alien is not as big a jump as the stuff you, that they all sort of want you to ex- 
you know, accept now. Like, it becomes fan fiction for the mad, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> like, just, it's all like, well, you know, where's your simple conspiracies? Your nice, easy, fucking, alright, yeah, maybe. Because yeah, the play, play, like, Bilderberg groups, the Bilderberg group exists and act like bare lens, but it, you know, <laughs> I can get into the odd, oh, someone was, you know, had a secondary motivation and, you know, people fucking want to worship an owl and think they're cool, but, um, it's just they expect, they, the, the, the stories have become outlandish to the point where, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to convince anyone who isn't, um, you know, I mean, what what does it take? I mean, people believe all kinds of shit, and that's the tr- that's the thing we found out uh, the late in the in the last few decades is oh, people are proper stupid, and they so <laughs> and th- this film examines that notion of um, where do people draw the line for themselves, and uh, what does it take to believe something uh, bizarre is is the truth, you know? And uh, it starts off, I guess, uh, just establishing. Our main characters. There's basically four of them: uh, Mel, who runs a pawn shop, and his uh, easily distracted and conspiratorial-minded uh, assistant. Who? Uh, what's this assistant's name? Nathaniel. Yeah, Nathaniel is a very much a switched-off millennial who uh, is is working. He's got the dream job, really. He's working somewhere nice and quiet, and he doesn't have to work very hard because Mark Maron doesn't force him, doesn't fire him for being shit. He just, you know, gently, pr- uh, passively, aggressively wants him to work, isn't it? Yeah, he's like, oh, you miss jobs like that, though. Yeah, there's a sort of sense that we all can get fired and be replaced so easily. I don't mind those jobs where it's like, oh, be shit then. And what am I going to do, fire you? No, too much asshole. I'll just tolerate you. <laughs> um, and then the other established couple is um, hmm. What are these two women called, character-wise? There's um, Mary and Cynthia. Thank you. And Mary is the blonde-haired one. No, the uh, fuck blonde-haired. Had a fifty-fifty shot there, didn't I? Yep. <laughs> so, Mary and Cynthia, they are. A couple who have come to their the grandfather's house of Cynthia's at the start of the film, right? To find out what if they, they should they think they've or she Cynthia's thinking she's inherited her grandfather's house. They let themselves into it and start looking around at like some of the stuff from her childhood that she remembers and passing comment on you know the fact that her granddad said he gave up smoking and yet there's cigarette butts everywhere and. They, you know, it's just a, like uh, how people behave when you know their relatives died, but they weren't like super close to them. So they're just finding out if they've inherited the house um, or not, or just doing the paperwork for that, and then uh, you know discovering the sword aspect of the story. So those are there's just basically a four and a half year deep lesbian couple. I don't. I shouldn't have used the word deep. That sounds weird. But therefore, they're, <laughs> they're an established like couple living together. That's all we really know. And they had some ambitions. Uh, you know, this, they, we we get told about this backstory, and it comes up a bit later. But those are our two uh, two people, two, two pairs of people essentially that go on a slightly mild odyssey journey into the world of uh, uh, what would it be? Civil War truthers. Yeah, 
fake Civil War artifacts. Yeah, the strange world of uh, antiques and uh, yeah, truth YouTube video makers and stuff. What did we? What do we make of the characters? Do they get fleshed out? Maybe we could just. Um, I don't know. Like, it's hard to know what to examine with this film because it is about what happens to them all. But what happens to them is we find out a bit more about each of them. But maybe Nathaniel less. He seems to just be uh, vaguely interested in uh, flat Earth theory, right? And hollow Earth theory. He's watch. We see that he's watching a YouTube uh, video from a, a, some how's a comedian actor guy who's presenting like a classic YouTube video about well. Let me just tell you a bit about hollow earth theory. And he's sort of explaining later on his flat earth views um, to Cynthia, right? So he's like the least fleshed out, but he's, you know, he's kind of funny in his own right. Uh, he has that gormlessness down. That sort of like, I tilt my head back a little bit, I let the jaw just sort of slacken. Yeah. And I am looking at you and paying attention, but... I could be asleep at any second. <laughs> yeah, and he has this constant, like, he's a constant annoyance to uh, Mel because he's too close and in his personal space. Just being interested, but also having no boundaries. And just being, you know... It's just this interesting, like, oh, you're always here, and yet... I don't, I don't understand why Mel can't just get rid of him. What, what do you think's keeping Mel from saying... You do nothing. You're a dickhead. You're fired. Is it just like a lonely company thing? Like he sort of explains it as like he just looked after the shop one day and then like, he's danger. It's kind of high high fidelity esque uh, vibes, isn't it? Mm. You also don't get much of a sense that Mal has any friends. Mm. Yeah, uh, like other than Nathaniel, like the only other guy you see him interact with is. Uh... Oh, I don't know. Was he like a neighbouring shop owner kind of thing? He had some sort of restaurant because he had an apron and he brought fries. <laughs> I know that much. Yeah. And he needed to charge yeah, his phone or something. And Deirdre, who, you know, quite clearly isn't... He doesn't want part of his life anymore anyway. So, yeah, I think it's implied that, you know, as a much stick as he gives him, you know, he's he still, you know, wants him around for the company. I think also if you have a pawn shop owning like life, you have you need that air of superiority. Like I'm knowledgeable, I tell people all day what things are worth. So my assistant should do as I want. Like he's compliant if useless. Like he doesn't have this like instinct to do stuff in his job. But I think probably in Mel's position, he needs someone who listens to him. And takes him, you know, you don't need people questioning you. Like, if porn stars taught us anything, having a bunch of relatives who think they know better than you creates interesting, you know, reality TV, but it's a fucking nightmare. So, that would be my, like, guess as to what Mel puts up with him for, because he doesn't work very hard. Um, and, you know, when push comes to shove, if you're being held up by uh, nut jobs with a screwdriver, he will at least attempt to squeegee them with counter polish if, you know, if it comes to it. But, you know, he's still useless. Um, either way. Um, yeah, so I guess because we, because we know more about Mel from him explaining his life later and we see the characters that interact with him, I suppose he's best summed up as being uh, an ex-drug addict. Like, 
he's been a pawn shop owner for about 15 years, and he has, his backstory involves him leaving New Mexico, going up to New York, wanting to get into a band, meeting, uh, what was her name? De- it wasn't Deidre, was it? It was something slightly off Deidre. No, it, it was, her name is Deidre, but they call her D. Right. So he had met Deidre, who we uh, beat briefly uh, in the film, and they became like hard drug users and got into a downward spiral of sorts that he's since uh, come back to his like. He was, his story was essentially uh, living with his aunt and uncle and taking over their pawn shop and just getting straight and being sober for a while, which I think has parallels with Mark Maron was like a, a druggie for a while and alcoholic or whatever, some combination of uh, substance abuser, but has been clean for years and years now. So it's obviously drawing on, like, parallels to his life. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the director played Deidre, I think. I think that's, yeah. So she cameos as uh, the sort of ex of Mel, or sort of on-and-off-again friend slash, like, unreliable... Like, there's a big, there's a heavy implication that, you know... Any time Mel has given her help in the past, it's either dragged him down or she's lied. And there's a heavy influence. There's a heavy implication. Her words are not to be trusted. Money will be spent on drugs. She's never been quite, you know, she hasn't been straight and sober as much as he has, isn't it? That's the, you know, the sad part of it, I suppose. But she writes impromptu poems. What do we make of that? Do we like someone who can just rock up to someone and be like, oh, I'll, write, I'll read you, or I'll write you a poem on the spot. And <laughs> No, I like, dislike uh, that intensely. I was, I was going to say, it's it's kind of weird to see it, like, nowadays. Like, maybe, like, back in, like, the 60s or something. Like, that might be a thing. I think it's... Oh, I don't yeah. get to hear any of the poems, either. No. She just yeah she's and also she has a book with all her poems in and she thinks they're all shit even to read to uh, Nathan Nathaniel at the counter she's like oh no 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 and she just writes him a new one and he's he's just pleased to get it I guess he's it's like uh, any sort of attention it's good attention and uh, yeah she scrolls out but it's, I think it's that like art like not like thespy or artsy thing where I may be a down and out or a drug addict from time to time. I'm, I got the heart of a poet, and I, I feel like this is my currency, my art. I, it's like a kind of hippie-ish, kind of uh, a little stonery kind of thing. I don't know. Like it's just a very like, you know, flighty, kooky kind of. Yeah, you know, it's all, it's all good. I mean, it's like, it's something raw about giving you giving you your poems to someone, but it's also a little bit like crazy cat lady, isn't it? Like. <laughs> so I think she's walking the line this character of being oh right so you've got drug problems but you know when you when you're with it you're you're nice this is cuz you can see why she'd be you know she's not just one dimensional junkie you know she's just someone trying to make a go of her life but also it would be nice if she could just be a poet and not have to worry about getting a car fixed I think that's a problem right she's so there's a there's a suggestion that her last chance with Mel has happened and that she's still back to lend money off of him, which has probably happened before. And he's like, nah, I'm done with this. You know, isn't it? There's a bit of a chat at the pawn shop. Uh, I did expect her to be more in the film than she actually was. 
because kind of like they kind of set it up at the beginning that she's going to be like more part of the action. Um, and she is like referred to a couple of times, and I think we see her again once more, but uh, not really. Like, I especially thought like the poem she wrote for Nathaniel was going to come back in in some way, like, like Mark Maron offhandedly reads it at the end and comes to a realization or something like that. Or maybe like when they get when they're on the farm with all the conspiracy people, maybe someone would search Nathaniel and find the poem, and then we'd, mm. what the hell is this shit? Could have been an option. But we get, at the end of the film, they like, the la- the film finishes on uh, Mel going to, you know, he f- they spot that her car is broken, even though they thought it could have been a lie. And he gets the car fixed and leaves her a package of uh, open groceries. The kind of groceries when you leave on someone's doorstep, you're like, well, raccoons are going to eat that, or something. But also, he seems to help himself to some open nachos. Like, how do you buy open nachos? <laughs> or whatever. That weirded me out. But he, he, so she's like, I mean, Abby, you thought that was weird, right? That he just helps himself to some of the groceries he bought, and it's like that was open, was it? Yeah, just, just yellowish something. We aren't even sure it's nachos, but it was definitely just okay. There's just an open thing in that bag, and you're going to leave it on a fucking doorstep in the country. That's also just invite raccoons into her yard. Well, it's it some. I don't think it was the countryside, but I think it was like urban. It was like you know, very ambiguous, out of town lot. I don't know. But I, I, th- I thought also, it, it's the sort of person who buys someone else groceries and thinks, well, I bought them so I can help myself. <laughs> it's like <laughs> just buy yourself some fucking chips, you prick. You separate. You, I don't know. It's just a, a, a definitely a subtle observation about how people are. But yeah, no. She, so her, the nar- the narrative I guess for Mel is that he does realise he is in love with his on and off again uh, girlfriend, and that he should keep being nice to her even though she's you know potentially unreliable. And I think the key is that they see that oh, if her car was broken, that wasn't just an excuse to get money. So at least I can help her out again. Yeah, it does. Like it does at the end, kind of play into the whole. Uh, trust issues that I think the film is trying to address. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I like it or not. Like, I like that, you know, he, he still helps her and kind of still kind of like walks away at the end. Yeah. Um, leaving it a bit more ambiguous. Um, and it was like a nice character moment for him when he's kind of like explaining to it, uh, um, to everyone, his kind of like his relationship with her. Yeah. But I, I'm not sure how it kind of like plays into the film that much, if you know what I mean. I think uh, in terms of what they do with the film, I think it's to not end the film on a complete, like this was a complete waste of time, like someone had to learn something, maybe. I, I find it odd though, they spot this car of hers that's broken down and damaged and it gets it fixed, but it's like, how the fuck did we get the key? Did she just leave the key in it? <laughs> and now she ends, ends up posting it back into her post box and you're like, wait, I mean, you knew her. Like you were her friend, but like, how are you? My in a car fixed. <laughs> my thing was, it was like it was a nice, clean, new, expensive-looking car. I don't know if it was like, that. It, like, it didn't seem to suit her persona, I suppose. I mean, yeah, maybe. But then we, you know, we don't we don't get a full fleshed-out backstory to everyone. It's just a, a hint of their lives, you know. Mm. So it could be it could just it could be any excuse, <laughs> I guess. Um. Anyway, you know, 
cars. I think also in America, people just get they get rid of cars before they're properly fucked. Like in this country, we drive them into the ground a bit more. I think. Yeah. Maybe. You know. Not not as bad as like places like India and Africa. They like they really fucking keep a car going beyond. But British people at least make sure it fails the MOT before they change it. Generally. Um, but yeah, no. I just um, I I I like that they did go back to her because they did set her up as a, an important character. But we do get a few other people in the pawn shop. I mean, they're just non-characters. So they're people using the pawn shop. Like the first guy is selling a guitar and, and some cowboy boots that Mark uh, surreptitiously uh, uh, has popped on. He goes to put them in storage once he's bought them, and then he's wearing the shoes. And I, I think he's quite enjoying playing the guitar in it. Stuff, but you, you, you uh, One of the things I like about the film is when, uh, if he has to wait, even for like a few seconds, he will pick up a guitar and fiddle with it. Oh, Mark Maron in real life, probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if he's near one, he's picking it up. Yeah, yeah. I know he's a big music fan, and you know has a f- fandom of you know, like maybe I think Mark Maron in the back of his head, like, well, I could have made a go of being in a band myself if I. Hadn't have become a stand-up, or whatever. But um, there's a. I I was waiting for the film to show us uh Mark or Mel's cards, right? Because he's a pawn shop owner. Whenever you go to a pawn shop, you're getting a low price so they can sell and make a profit. That's standard practice. You never go to a pawn shop because you're gonna get a good deal, um, unless you're really fucking good at haggling. I mean, you'd have to really do well to get a pawn shop person to pay you too much. Um, so, but I wanted, I wasn't sure, because they sell these shoes and the guitar, and he just offers him $100 for the two, and there's, like, I don't know, like, you, they don't confirm whether Mel's a really honest person, I mean, I suppose there's the, he does try and fleece the people who have the sword, right, so there's that, but, like, I, I feel like we don't know the true value of things, and whether or not he really cheaps out on people. At the end of the day, pawn shops, they don't want to buy your stuff if it's worthless. So if you've got something of value, they want it cheap. And most of the time, you haven't got something of value, so you can fuck off. <laughs> That's what I think. Um, and then there's that thing as well of, like, no one in... Like, even a proper antiques dealer isn't going to know about every single possible item that could come. So to an extent, they just have to guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you have to sound like you know what you're talking about, so you don't... Uh, you know, I think people, most people who go to a pawn shop know what they're in for, and then it, you know, if you're not, you're gonna get disappointed. Is usually the case. Um, but I, I know I liked I liked the scenes where we we see how you know custom commerce works. There's a woman in there who um, is picking up a fur coat later that she's bought back. Because the other aspect, I guess, of a pawn shop is you can keep stuff there until you get the money and pay off your whatever you've got going on. Uh, and then you pay the interest and get it back. So you know we see the the facets of how a pawn shop works, and there we get, I like I like that just regular inner workings of a place stuff. I could actually you know tolerate a lot of meandering in the pawn shop if need be, but the the film goes hey here's the story. We got a couple of lesbians with a sword who've been disappointed because they ain't getting a fucking house anymore. Um. Do you guys like the scene where they wander in and they discover the... I don't know if she's an estate agent or the person who does the paperwork or what. But it's just like this jolly woman who's completely caught off guard by them being there because she's just listening to headphones and looking at paperwork or something. Do we like her little role in this film? 
So it seems a little bit like millennials are kind of like portrayed in a certain way in in films. It's almost a kind of um, trope? stereotype trope. Yeah, trope. That's the word I was looking for. Um, and they kind of use it twice in this. And like you know, it's it's a minor detail, but it felt a bit um, felt picked done, on. If you know what I mean? You felt they felt picked on. They're like, oh, the younger people in this are listening to headphones and are oblivious to the world around them, and are not doing their job properly. Is that what you're? And you felt <laughs> you felt attacked, did you, Anthony? Or I don't know if I'd class myself as a millennial. Oh, we're, we're we're all elder millennials. It's always a vague like you know, we're not Gen we're X. The, we're, we're transition periods. <laughs> Yeah, yes. we had phones. We used to have phones that had snake on, and our childhoods were devoid of mobiles. But uh, we still very much uh, were children in the, you know, we were still growing up in the always. So, yeah, I suppose. But yeah, so it, it, it. I think yeah, okay. They played the listening to headphones twice thing, but I think that's also like um, I think just how we're all headed anyway, even non-millennial, like Gen Z I think even older people are, are kind of just endlessly just ignoring the world around them anyway, I think that's the way we're all headed I don't think it's even like young people are like, like, like what's to look at, they were in where, like Birmingham, Alabama I mean there's nothing they haven't seen before around there <laughs> you're in some old man's house you're waiting, you can be singing listening to music, I don't know I mean, do you like her? Did you like the scene where they, you know, get sat down and are told? She, they keep asking about the oh, is the plumbing good? And it's like we don't ask about the plumbing anyway of any person. People, people who are showing you around a house don't know anything about it really, do they? Apart from, I think they joke about that one room smelling of horrible. It was um, before you knew why they were there. There was this sort of teetering moment where they knock the door. No one answers, so they try it to see if it's open, and it is. And you're like, "What are they going to find in this house? It's like, is there going to be a dead body? Is there going to be? An... It's like, what are they going to find? And it turns out, oh, it's just like a lawyer, and it's about the house. Yeah, there's definitely a tension when they kind of uh, really get in as to you know, these people are just ignoring because they're just having a chat about this this granddad figure and you know all this, but. You're expecting like either a jump scare or something, but it's just some sort of solicitor being oblivious, and then having to really jollily downplay the fact that uh, no, you're not getting the house uh, that was sold to the bank. And there's a bit of you know social commentary about how bullshit in America it is that when you get old, basically everything you've owned is getting sold to look after yourself in your old age. But yeah, this great grand, this grandfather or great grandfather, I'm not sure. Grandfather. His grandfather. Yeah. He has not been able to leave anything other than uh, a Civil War sword, an artifact, and he has a, a written letter and some certificates with it. And the written letter, they start reading it and trying to put, puzzle, put together why the fuck are we, why would we care about this shitty old sword? And it's, there's a sense in the letter that doesn't make sense. There's Alzheimer's vibes. And they they know that the guy was like ninety odd and was losing his marbles, but also possibly before that was uh, some sort of civil war. The South won the war, truther of some kind, uh, and brought. I think they mentioned he brought it out on special occasions. You kind of imagine the slightly kook uh, grandfather figure, but there's a sense that he was loved. Like that's all, that's all we get really is that he was 
you know, not not totally bizarre, but maybe had some bizarre beliefs. Um, and they were a bit dismayed because, you know, being lesbians, they must be vaguely liberal. And so they're a bit like, oh, God, what's this Civil War shit we're going to have to look into now? And also deal... They politely dismiss this woman who has completely given them bad news. Uh, and... Uh, Felsa <laughs> tells me we can stay here for a week, you know, while the bank's sorting this shit out if you want. And I was kind of wondering, do they want any of this like stuff off the guy, like all of the furniture? Like, do they own that? Can they just, you know, sell everything from the house? I mean, I don't know. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, about that. It was about this weird sword and whether or not it legitimately is a piece of history, and uh, how much they're willing to believe that the that it was. A sword presented to some kind. It was a. What was the basic story? Because they obviously they retell the story. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because it was written by someone who had a dementia. But what's the what's the full gist? Essentially, like there was like um, another battle in the Civil War that is uh, unknown or has been suppressed, as they say in this, where like. The, essentially the South won and like um, the Union surrendered to them at that point and uh, as part of that like the, the general handed over his sword as like a symbol of of contrition yeah so essentially it kind of like legally says that the South won the war which, Which is yeah that wouldn't actually have any repercussions these days. I suppose it would be just a matter of um, pride. Yeah, it's the, the the trouble with that conspiracy theory is you can't square it away with the ramifications of what happened. So you go, okay, if the South did win the war, why um, didn't they win? How did how do we explain the current state of America and how it's divided up and um, and governed? Like so, that's the one the one major like huh that doesn't fit with reality. But then also, I mean, with within the um, Civil War buffs, there are smaller myths that exist. Like what's the one? There are a lot of I mean, you see, myths to the point of it's actually debated where uh, how close it was between the South winning. Now, I being a mild mild history fan know a little bit about the Civil War but I don't think there was a genuine sense that it was going to go the way of the South there's a, but there's people who you know got a real strong argument for it was closer than we'd like to think it was and it's always it's the same with all wars like people say oh Hitler could have won the war if you know he'd not engaged the Russians or something and you can't really play out the scenario in a different way to find out but so there are like mini theories about the American Civil War that people who are sympathetic towards the South or you know are aligned to that that world that thinking or it's indeed their history you know they they have people who have a more revisionist history uh, of it and they sort of see things more sympathetically towards the uh, slave owner because you know each side has slave owners there's obviously there's no real good side to any war really. Um, but then, you know, there's definitely some legitimate conspiracy theories which are a bit more plausible than the South won, and then I guess they won, and then didn't get their way. What happened there? <laughs> you know, like how could you, you know, what can we do with this theory? 
But they, I mean, it's, I mean, people collect swords and artifacts. It's definitely a saleable item, regardless, is the thing. So they want to at least pawn it for a good price, and that takes them to, uh, I guess, Mel's pawn shop, right? Hmm. And they start off talking about it like, oh, we believe it. I mean, oh, we know they don't believe it, right? Because they know it has dementia. But they're trying Mel out as like, oh, we've got a story to make this have more value. They're kind of trying to sell it to him. And he stands there, like, befuddled as to, like, oh, yeah, story, is it? Because he examines it and he's like, oh, legit, it is a sword. It's, you know, $400 is what he's willing to offer. And <laughs> he then listens to their putting together of this story, which. You know, every time it's told, they can't get the facts straight because there aren't any facts. And it's like the names change, like it's the Battle of Chupacabra or Chickaboo or Chickenfoot or Chicken Fist. And there's it's either general or there's some sort of military general or person called Sherman or like they have lots of details that can that are fluid <laughs> to the basic story that Anthony explained. What did we did we like? Uh, when these four main characters all met each other and uh, slowly got sized each other up. Yeah, I like I like the chemistry they all have together, especially the, the two women. Um, and I like the, the kind of the relationship that the two characters have uh, like together. I like like at the end they have um, like it, it turns out they both bought guns with them, and that they had like secret codes in case anything went wrong. And the the kind of I like the aspect. So the comedy of the thrills, the comedy that punctuates the thrills here, is that uh, everyone's sort of enjoying how like they're in a kind of thrill ride movie thing. Like so the fact that they have the, the it's like when they get into trouble, they use their pager or whatever and have guns and 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 stuff. It, they no, kind of, that was one of the jokes that they had smart watches, and that was the first smart time they used them. Yeah, that's it. Smart. They were, but they were thrilled that they got to use their smartwatches to message each other. <laughs> and <laughs> it is like every, every now and again, the characters are taken aback. But oh, this is this is actually exciting, and they kind of break off from the seriousness to be a bit mundane and have a little little thrilled chat about what's going on. <laughs> Even in this, like the one girlfriend uh, breaks off and is looking at the things while her partner like negotiates. Like Mary's negotiating with Mel as the kind of more stern of the couple, and she's getting distracted by, like, cat milk jugs and stuff. Like, just absolute tat. And trying to... I think it's kind of funny, because they pair off, they Mel and Mary together as, like, a... They're the the dominant in the two couples, I guess. So they're negotiating more over the sword and the backstory and the certificates and the value. And then, I think, uh... Nathaniel is sort of stopping um... Cynthia, is it Cynthia? Shit. Yes. Yeah, Nathaniel is sort of stopping Cynthia touching the tag on a gramophone <laughs> and and making some shit up that he's heard Mel say earlier about something else in the store. And so he's sort of protecting, he's sort of like needlessly trying to protect the territory of the other objects in the shop for some reason. I don't know. There's some very weird, like, little comments about how people behave in these tense situations. It's even a funny bit when Mark Martin, uh, I don't know if he was ad-libbing or if it was the script, but, like, he's got a customer in and she's looking at a painting and he tells her all about the painting and the position it was of. And by the time he's finished explaining it, he's like, actually, I don't know if I'm selling it. And the person hasn't shown any interest in it. They've just looked at it. And then by the end, he's talked himself out of selling it. And like, no, actually, mm. I don't know if I want to get rid of that. And it's just like, okay, 
This guy's a bit nutty as well, is he? <laughs> Abby, what did you make? Like, did you like this fact that this is the vibe of the comedy where it would be punctuating tension with absurd character moments? I guess I'd say. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It, it got across that these were just a bunch of really normal knobs trying to do something out of their realm a little bit. Like, not loads out of their realm, but just far enough out to make it a bit weird. I think the key to it is it starts off being a classic, well, you know, if you can make some money, that's great, right? You want to sell the sword, you want to get as much as possible, and you don't want to be swindled. You don't want to give over a sword for a low amount and, like, find out it's worth loads. And equally, they realise the sword isn't worth a lot because, well, it's, it's, it's only a artifact of history. It, is, it doesn't prove any mad conspiracy in their minds, at least. So it's a can, dare we swindle nut jobs is the, is the, is the key. And I think the first time they, 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 they don't come to a deal, the lesbians take the sword away, and then Mel talking to Nathaniel, they end up googling or YouTubing like a clip of, you know, a guy talking about swords. How the South won the war. How people are willing to buy artifacts for a large price. You could make, you know, up maybe fifty grand, fifty grand for what do they call it? Like um, the the Civil War nut jobs are like call it prover items. What do you call them? Prover. What? Prover. Prover items. Yeah. Or was it was another one? I can't remember if there's another word for it. There was, but I don't remember what it is. Yeah, but you've got these prover items, these pieces of memorabilia that can prop up your conspiracy theory, or at least uh, fine antiques that you know you can keep in your shrine to how things could have been. And so there's a, oh shit, if we can sell it to nut jobs, we'll make a mint, because they believe in a lot of shit that we don't. But if they want it for that, pro- you know, if they're willing to pay, they can have it, right? That's the thing. Mm. So, that becomes the ploy. And luckily, like, Mary left a number after they, di- you know, they sort of didn't do the deal. And then so it's, it becomes a secondary negotiation of like how are we going to sell this to the nut jobs, and they eventually have to settle on the fucking four of us are going to contact someone. We're not, no one. There's like an element of I'm not just leaving it with a pawn shop guy. So they don't, you know, they all they kind of in it together, or they they're going to go fifty fifty after some negotiation in it. Well, there's, again, there's lots of good comedy in here. I don't, you know, I'm not say every single joke, but I enjoyed. The begrudging acceptance that the four of them, like I think even Nathaniel, kind of talks his way into it, even though he is irrelevant. He could just look after the shop while Mel goes with the other two. But the, the four of them are going to deal with this together, and they end up like WhatsApping, uh, phoning, and then like having WhatsApp messages from uh, interest an interested party who was like, I guess, something to do with a YouTube channel, right? Yeah. One of my favourite characters off the back of this was they get the the what do you call him like the guy who assesses whether it's real or not from the perspective of the conspiracy southern sympathising guys. I guess he's praiser. Yeah, praiser. He's, uh, but he's quite the character. Does anyone want to talk about him? Hog jaws, you mean? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I do mean that. The first of many weird names. That crop up in this. It, I was fine with Hogjaw being like this inexplicable nickname, but when some 
like uh, I guess another example of a millennial who's not paying attention, like at the, when they go to the 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 ranch or the country house or whatever of of the people who are good at the buyer, there is a guy called Screen Door. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, Screen Door. And, and when they shout out the first time, it sounds a bit like oh they want them to open the screen door or something, but then mm. they just go into a perfectly normal building, and somebody else starts going out door. Oh, he comes out. You're like, wait, a guy? What? Well, it's like that. That's when it gets a bit more like Chris Guest, where it's like slightly beyond reality. <laughs> but yeah, hog, hog jaws, hog jaw, hog jaw, right? Not jaws. What? I can't it says jaws here. Okay, so and he likes to. Eat, they call. I think Nathaniel remembers his name. It's like hog, and it's like jaws. It's like, oh, sorry, mate. Uh, I'm not, you're right. I've got to call you by the name you prefer. No explanation. And also, there's a sense that, okay, this is a pseudonym for him. He doesn't want to give his real name. He doesn't want to, like, he's kind of, you know, KG. Because obviously, if you believe in man conspiracy shit, you don't want people to phone you up just to laugh at you or to sort of belittle what you're doing or sell you bullshit. Like, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you need something legitimate to buy. There must be time wasters and things. Or you want to look more cagey and, like, mysterious so that you get, you know, people are intimidated. There's all factors in in all factors in what he, he's probably doing. But he's your kind of King of the Hill style, <laughs> like, trucker hat, uh, shitty attitude, you know, plaid shirt, and then... Again, an air of superiority, but also an undercurrent of racism or like a kind of right wingness that is implied by the way he acts, right? Mm. Like, I thought one of the interesting things is when he's finding out the story of the sword. Like, he examines it like someone who, you know, is pretending to know. He looks like he knows what he's doing. Handle it with a glove and use a magnifying glass. That'll do. Yeah, that's, you know, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> Looking at the seals and things and all that shit. But then, when he asks the story, and like uh, the less confident of the two lesbians, Cynthia, uh, it, it you know, his her grandfather, and once he finds out that it's, she's the relative of the, the descendant of the people who are connected to this sword, he will not deal with the other one because she's like, "Oh, it's, it's your relative. You must give the story." And he sort of turns his back on uh, her partner, who was trying to explain. And it's and it's like it's like it's like what is that? That's not racism because they're both white. He doesn't know they're a couple necessarily, but he's like, why are you doing? <laughs> Can't they all explain or any like like I don't know. It's like a sense of if you're a relative, I somehow have more respect for you if you were connected to this mythology. Mm. And then she, because she's like, you know, not as good at. Well, we think she's the least good at talking. They all kind of prove themselves bad at ad libbing, bullshit. <laughs> but she has to like explain it, and then like everyone's sort of tensely waiting, or her partner's gesturing things to sort of get the story right. And I like that it was quite an implausible story. And then he goes, he sort of hears, he hears what he wants to hear, and he's like, yeah, good, <laughs> good. I believe you, even though it made no sense. Well, we should explain. It's not that they're making it up. It's that the granddad did give her a letter to explain, yeah. but because he was old and doddery, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, they, they, you know, they read a letter of someone with Alzheimer's, so they can't even stick to the facts because there are no facts in it. Yeah. 
but uh, no, no, like, and then I think uh, Mel and that. Oh, anyway, anyway, there's like we don't get every detail, but there's a there's a slight talking down of like, what are you doing? Why did you <laughs> you said different names at different times? And it turns out whenever anyone explains it, they can't quite stick to the the, the simple information and not sound like they're also mad. So then I guess the next stage is they have to go to show the sword to the the buyer and he wants to examine it and pay them potentially 40,000 which is a nice sum if you're going to swindle some you know nutty people and he turns up in a like Mustang is it Abby? Well a muscle car. Some sort of with like a lot of shit in the it's like a two seater car with a bunch of shit in the like uh, it's like a not a small pickup or something and he's like one of you's come in, Mel, come with me, and everyone's like, oh, but, 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 we can't, there's an element of no trust here, see, sort of trust, mm-hmm. sort of no bloody trust, and then it's like, okay, well, you can stand out here in the fucking sun while I get another vehicle, and uh, I guess I'll come back uh, with a serial killer van with carpeted, like it's a lorry with carpeted uh, interior at the back, you know, in the back of the thing, and he wants all four of them to just sit in there, seatbeltless. And they have to sort of they, deal with that. They had this whole vibe going on that it, that was like a a killer's van or something like that. But to me, it just reminded me of like the actually thinking about it, a serial killer to have one of these, but one of those car trucks that you've gone around to sort of have sex with people with in. Oh, Abby, on just bl- bland carpet. I think people who have fuck vans are going to have a little bit more than just carpeting. No, but we already know he's lame. Lame. <laughs> Anthony, you were an occasional van driver. Is this suspicious <laughs> behaviour, or just we're trying to move things and keep them, you know, not worn out? Well, I think, like, one of the things the film does well is it's kind of like antagonist characters are perfectly in the middle of kind of intimidating and just ridiculously funny if you know what I mean. There's never there's never any point where it kind of like leans too much either way. So I like I, I kinda of like like I like I like like kind of like these moments where it's kind of like it is it's kind of like stereotypical villain kind of like intimidating. Um but also it's just like the the, the way they're reacting to a lot of it, it just makes it all kind of funny. I think it's based on the prejudice, I guess, liberal people have to right-wing, or just how, I guess, you know, city people to country folk, or any of the stereotypes about, you know, rednecks, or people who carry themselves in a slightly more, you know, country, Republican-y way, or just, you know, that kind of... have that southern vibe where they, you know, there's no question they're southern. <laughs> like, it's that, oh, do we trust people? You know, it's that, it's playing on prejudice, isn't it? Like, these are people who are behaving normally, but are still a little bit off. But they're not doing any, they're not, you know, being too bad. I mean, there are those two guys who actually threaten Mel in the store. They come in with, like, a screwdriver and are looking to basically steal the sword. Or they've heard about it on the, I don't know, somehow through the WhatsApp group or some shit. But they're, like, rival southern I don't know. We don't even know if they're criminals, these people, but like rival nut jobs who want to have the sword. Like later on, Mel finally remembers that it's like you knew him when they were kids. 
like running around because he's lived there like 15 years and these guys are only in their 20s and he's like oh yeah you came into the store once you're a black guy and your mum bought you some ice cream and it just completely changes the tone of the whole situation they're in yeah it's hard to intimidate someone when you have been in their shop as a child <laughs> crying about having a row and have a whole like there's a whole story and he remembers so many details of their like childhood and their parents and I like he even accuses like why do you take after the shitty parent like <laughs> why have you stolen my screwdriver there's a lot of like dense you know comedy in this through in, in just the bits of dialogue and the revelations yeah it's a good bit I do like that like that and they all they all two get like booted off the farm or whatever because the the other conspiracy conspiracy minded people are like you know aware of them. Um, but yeah, dubious fan. They kind of accept it because <laughs> uh, they want you know forty thousand dollars to get in a van and be driven somewhere. Uh, it's a risk worth taking, probably. And there's four of them. That's the the that's the, the thing that's a well. I can't. They can't just murder four of us. Bullets can't go through four people <laughs> or whatever. Um, but what would, you know, whatever. They, I mean, the other thing is they could just be driven somewhere and robbed. Like that could happen quite easily in a back of the van scenario. Also, one person could sit up front, right? That would be my like. Well, I'll sit in the front then. It's like, oh no. <laughs> anyway, this dickhead takes them to through the countryside, and in the interim, we get one of the interesting scenes of this film is a lot of the character development happens, backstories developed, and so forth. It's from the four of them just having a polite conversation, sitting on the wheel arches of this van. And being like, oh, so when did you guys get married? And Mark tells his story about being, you know, uh, a druggie and getting clean and becoming a pawn shop owner and things. I thought it was a really good scene. It was like, it was punctuated with humour all throughout, but also very real, I felt. You know, it felt like mm. honest mm. people. What's the, what's the story with, like, the lesbian couple are like, they met at a restaurant, but one of them wants to fucking start an escape room <laughs> or something? That's her dream. Is that right? It was both of their dreams, wasn't it? To start an escape room. They have a child is one aspect. And then I think one of them... Over, yeah, they both wanted to make an escape room, which they then have to explain to Mel, who's a bit more out of touch. I want to make an escape room. What would you do with it? Because they have the basic suggestion of something to do with a casino-themed room and, an, and, a, and like a laser pointer. I don't know how it would work. But what would you want to do then? Got any ideas? Would it be like Saw or something? Have no, you... I've seen that. <laughs> Boring. Yeah. <laughs> Crystal Maze vibes is what I'm thinking. Well, yeah. Have you ever done one? You have done one, right? No, I've never done one. I always wanted to. I think Abby's... Abby, your brother did one he was telling us about, but it, they didn't do so good, so I didn't get to find out all the aspects of it. Mm. Yeah, he wanted to, like, try different stuff out, and the people he went with were just like, we have to do this, we have to get out of the room. Like, but there's some switches over there. We have to get out of the room. Yeah, it's something to do with like finding the the qua qu- uh, the what's it called the the number for like a lock or something. There's a whole like combination. Yeah, yeah. So there's like a lock combination that they could discover, and you know, there was a lot of bullshit. But it's like it was this very. It's a very late tens concept, isn't it? Like the mid tens, late tens. Escape rooms have become like a you know a thing, but they're also slightly dying out as a thing as well. I don't feel like they're ca- they're not snowballing to be like the new laser tag or paintball. They're just sometimes towns and and stuff have them. Yeah, so, they've reached their peak. I think. I don't. Yeah, it, fun. It's a different 
goal, isn't it? In life, I like that those. The it's, it's still... a day out where you're you actually staying inside. So. <laughs> you're all up for it. <laughs> Rainy day activity, indoor mini golf or something, be another option. Oh yeah, let's go have a dream. Yeah, but we get you know it's they're so funny and interesting, and they sort of bond a bit and get to know each other before being let out uh, and bodyguarded, as we mentioned by uh, screen door. Uh, by bodyguarded, I mean he stands there to get cold cocked with a gun later on, but does nothing again. Millennials being useful, useless. This time he's not listening to music or anything. Uh, but yeah, they they sort of hang about, and um, those two guys from the screwdriver attack turn up and try and you know rob them again, and it's you know it all gets the kibosh put on it. Actually, one of the funny things we get the I don't know what's he he's listed as kingpin. Do we know the name of the uh, bald guy with ginger hair who look he has Andy Zaltzman's haircut, but is a slightly more inti- intimidating looking chap. I've seen him in something or other before. Not sure what. They just call him boss. I don't think anyone uses his name. Well, he's the buyer, right? And he owns the farm they're on. And he meets them with a big plastic sling over one arm because he's had his fist up a horse. Is that right? In a vet way, not just a... Oh, he doesn't mean just fisting a horse, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was helping to birth a calf, I think. Also, yeah. And it was not one calf, of those... A foal. Um, yeah, the pregnant mare that he's had his arm in when they arrive. And there's a bit of, like, nice comedy about... You can't just, like, <laughs> rip your like arm out and... show up, you can't just stop birthing a foal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he's trying to shake their hand with it on, and it's like, are you joking? Like, I mean, obviously they are joking, it's a comedy, but it was just like, fucking hell. Stay, imagine just being confronted with a farmer who wants to fucking shake your hand after it's been up a fucking animal's fucking vagina. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but, um... He whips that off and uh, sort of, he's intimidating, but in a, oh yeah, come on, you know, like, I'm in charge here, uh, you know, you might be killed if you misbehave, but also, come and, uh, I want to, there's a lot of I want to deal with one person business that they then have to, like, I think the cover story with Met, like, because they, they're like prejudice against these people, uh, they don't go with the angle of, I'm a pawn shop owner and two lesbians or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, we're a couple and they're a couple and we've heterosexual normal people, don't worry about it. We're not swindlers who've only met each other today <laughs> or yesterday or whatever. But they, you know, Mark Maron and Mary are the two to go into the office and the other two are left behind and looked after. And uh, yeah, we have the the final kind of, not twist, but revelation, I guess, at the office of... Uh, boss guy who wants to potentially buy this uh, weapon. Don't want to talk us through that? Well, I just want to talk about the toy room. <laughs> it's very Pulp Fiction, the suggestion that uh, in the basement of this guy's regular nice country house is uh, the toy room. Just some Abby. kind of torture basement. That's but the implication. They just make reference to it, which makes it worse. It could be anywhere between like a sex dungeon and just somewhere with some, uh, you know, thumb screws or something. Do you think the film perhaps is a bit too silly at this point, suggesting like these these people who are afraid to be there have been threatened with like this concept of the room where they might get tortured in? Is it a bit much that at the end of this film they leave a guy 
to be tortured and dealt with. Like, this is an implied crime family possibly torturing a guy. And they take the van of the guy that brought them there as well, and that that's not resolved. Is that any of these issues for you, or were you just happy to, you know, see it unfold? Slightly. Um, only because, like, it's it just becomes a bit unclear. Like, like, um, like when the guy... Um, it's kind of like laughing at them because he's successfully kind of like intimidated them. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, he's just kind of like joking around and he's on their side, essentially. It is a bit weird to reveal that, like, oh, actually, they are weird, intimidating people like this who have torture rooms. You're right. I think the key, the key is it's he, this ginger guy, uh, he's... He, you know, he's he's coming across like he believes in the Civil War truth, truth story of the South one, and this is an artifact he wants to buy, and he and he wants to hear the story. And he hears their story, and it makes no sense. And then he tells them, "Are you bullshitting me?" He gets quite intimidating and basically scares them into admitting they were, you know, don't believe any of this shit themselves. They just want to live. Please don't, you know, don't kill us or whatever. They're really scared. And so when he goes, ah, I'm like you guys, I don't believe either, I just want to buy these artifacts. Is it, I want to buy these artifacts to keep them out of the hands of nutjobs? Or as a kind of yeah. curio to make money off of? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, essentially just to, so we can put them away and just let them rot so no one can get their hands on them and misuse them. Abby, what do you make of uh, the, I'm joking, I'm not, I, well, I'm, I'm in scary and intimidating, actually I'm not, I'm a normal guy like you. But also, I am secretly a nut job who tortures people. Now, go with my blessing. <laughs> Take the guy's van. Well, he's actually doing a really good job of showing... Well, you hear about a lot of uh, psychopaths that people didn't know that they were, like, violent or whatever, because they just seemed like a really nice, normal person. And I think this actor's done a really good job of seem- seeming really quite personable and could be quite pleasant if you didn't know that he had, like, the toy room in his basement, and that he was violent. <laughs> like, if you just met him in, like, a shop and had a brief chat, you wouldn't think anything of it at all. Yeah, but it's also he asserts himself enough in his own, you know, house, and it's mysterious enough to bring you here without, like, not letting, like, oh, pick up one guy and the other is following a car. There's a sense of, oh, we can't let you know where you are. So he's, it, there's a, it is a mysterious element. But also this guy, he's been swindling his own people because part of the problem is when he admits that he doesn't believe the conspiracy, when his lackey, uh, Hog Jaws, comes in and is pissed off and pulls a gun on them and is like, you fucking, you know, he call, he's like pissed off that his boss or whatever has been lying and doesn't believe in what he presumably believes in. Mm. And that, that creates a kind of semi-Mexican standoff. Well, not a Mexican standoff, because uh, the, the sword is then used as a sword and does nothing. It just hurts slightly because it's like an old antique blunt sword. And then so Hogjaw just has them all at gunpoint and he's a, saying he's going to kill them, but he's also making them put their hands up and turn around and just kind of annoyed and agitated. And um, make them dance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes them all like it feels very ad-libbed because like he starts yeah. saying like dance like a donkey or dance like a puppet to various people. Oh yeah, dance like a puppet, dance like you're making apple pie, and dance <laughs> like a donkey. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, so it was very like absurd, 
at that point. I think I'm like very half-assed. Like I don't know how to mime dance to this. Why are we doing this at all? But for me, it was it was very funny. So good job <laughs> either way. Um, yeah, that was great. And then like, but then Mary has uh, paged, uh, not paged, uh, Apple watched or whatever. Her girlfriend, who then has an ankle gun that she then draws and Surprise uses. Gun. Yeah. <laughs> I think because she was told not to trust Nathaniel, she spends a little bit of time worrying and trying to lock him in the van but not being able to shut the door and then being like, oh, he's he's pathetically humming and she feels sorry for him and then, as we find out, uses him in the, the sort of distraction to sort of, you know, get the jump on everyone with her gun. So it becomes a little bit more, like, mad. Because like, the other thing that happened, so she, they have a kind of... Um, she pulls the gun on on Hawk Jaws and saves them all, and they're all thrilled. But also, she, they have to explain that the the boss is not dangerous, even though she's shouting at him as well initially. And so there's a whole like explain the situation, calm down, figure out who's to be trusted and who's not. And Nathaniel had to like be the distraction of like tapping the window, and he's stuck out there for a while. And there's it's a that fucking pigeon. Yeah, like a pathetic little fool. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a kind of, again, it's that kind of breaking the tension with everyone getting a bit distracted by how crazy it's been. And so, but they, you know, the, the sense of it is essentially uh, Hog Jaws is going to be handled by some other henchmen who are presumably in the house. There's like a couple of other dudes who are called in. It's like, why haven't they come into the room full of shouting and guns being drawn? And they stay away until their boss calls them. And, you get a uh, sense that everyone who works for him is a fucking idiot. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but, the, the, you know, Hogjaws is told you're going to the toy room for our torture for, for or something. And he doesn't like the sound of that, obviously. But he has betrayed his boss, but then equally the boss has been a dick. Anyway, it gets down to the right, let's sell this sword and get out of here. The guy still wants it for 40 grand, because it is, I mean, it is a piece of memorabilia. His motivation is his own, and he's a rich, like, possible criminal. Who knows? But he <laughs> is seconds away from having it handed over to him for the money, when Cynthia decides, actually, I can't get rid of it, because I am attached to it. And then literally everyone is dismayed. <laughs> I like even Nathaniel's like, uh, what's the like? She's like, oh, but you know, I can't get rid of it. It's my father, my grandpappy's sword, and it means something to me, and I, it's a sentimental value all of a sudden. And then she's like, oh, they, 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 she doesn't sell it, and the guy's like, it's fine. I understand it's your family's thing. You keep it. And then she's like, I got a sword. It's like the fan is like, um, you had a sword all the time. <laughs> like you never didn't have a sword. <laughs> He's kind of even. Even he is like, this is a bum deal. We're all gonna get ten grand out of this, and now, even Mary's like, oh, it's fine. You might. What am I gonna say? <laughs> like, I care about money more than you. You could keep your sword, love. You know, it's like literally, the kind of fuck, fucking hell, waste of time, comedy ending. I guess of uh, well, that was for nothing and was mad. What did you guys make of the fact that she wants to keep the sword at the end? I think. It made sense. Um, like, it kind of... It made, it made sense in kind of that it doesn't matter whether, you know, whether the story is true or whether you trust in it or not. Because, you know, it, it, the sword was sentimental to her, it reminded her of her grandfather. 
and stuff like that, so it didn't really matter in the end. And she genuinely seems to not have anything else because she's not getting the house or anything. And she does say that she she names some things. The grandfather was like nice and stuff and look after her. So there is a like oh well, it means more if it means more to you then you should keep it. But it's like oh forty grand. But then again, you know what you do you, if you get a lot of money like that amount, you buy a car or buy a you know do out your house or something. But then you don't have that heirloom. I mean, everyone, everyone's going to remember the time they went to a fucking nut jobs uh, country house and nearly got killed with a pawn shop guy. <laughs> that story stays in your. You don't need an artifact to remind you that one time. <laughs> you took your life in your hands and got to use your Apple watches. No, but I think it's kind of like the reverse of of the people, uh, like people having planted their own meaning on the sword, and mainly it's kind of nefarious. Yeah. Um, stuff. But like what, but how you know what she's implanted on the sword is like her memories of her grandfather and, and stuff like that. Yeah, sort of the sweeter reverse, as you say, of of mm. this. This sword is being imbued with. You know, it doesn't matter. Truth isn't the issue here. It's more about what do things. What is the intrinsic value of something? And it is the funnier option of it was a waste of time, and no one's getting anything. <laughs> it also means that Mark Maron's gesture to, uh, like fix the car for his ex. He hasn't gained money and decided to do it as a kind of well, I got ten grand, you know, I can now do this. He does that out of his own pocket at the end, so it shows he he's been made to think about it again. So I think it's a better ending than I don't know. He's, they actually get the money, and uh, we you know fade out on the toy room being making look like I don't know loads of sounds of like dildos on drills or something going going on. I don't know whatever you care to imagine is happening in the toy room. Maybe it's just and Legos. there's just a, a sense of of friendship as well at the end, where yeah. like you feel like they'll they they'll all meet again for like lunch or something. Yeah, at least they've they have they all shared that experience, didn't they? So whenever they're back down in town, they might call in the pawn shop, even if they don't live there or whatever. But either way, like there's a yeah, this was an experience we all had. <laughs> that was weird, wasn't it? And it was weird, in fairness. Um, yeah, and like uh, it pretty much wraps up then. With the slight, it does slightly irk me that is the kingpin boss guy giving them this? Va- does this van have value? Can you just like trade, like go to like a car dealership or like get rid of the van for a few quid? Or do they? How do you return that? Like, do you just? I guess you might just WhatsApp him and say when you're done playing with Hog Jaws, when you've done <laughs> like whatever you're doing in the toy room, like releasing his nuts from the Nutcracker or whatever. Can pick up his van from this park car park, I guess, is an option. Or are they saying he's going to be chum by the end of the week and that the car is collateral? I don't know. Anyway, I what do you? I mean, was this a problem? <laughs> like it, to me, there's some loose ends, but it, you know, it's not a deal breaker. Yeah, it's the same. It's like yeah, for like a couple of very mild loose ends, but you also don't need to spend any screen time on him. So yeah, and at the end way, of the... like bug it. And we all, everyone, you watch this, you're aware it's a vaguely improvised comedy. Like, it feels real a lot of the time, because it's got such normal behaviour, or normal realistic settings, and natural acting. Like, lots of just observational stuff. Just the fact that the 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 black guy from the restaurant comes back and saves... Like, there's a lot of, like, you know, gunplay for regular life, because that guy, the restaurant guy who, who, like, charges his phone and saves them by just showing that he has a gun to the screwdriver-wielding maniac. So this does have heightened drama in it and is 
uh, heightened drama in it and is filmic at times, but it mostly feels very natural. And the comedy is that subtle, people are like this dialogue, you know? So I, I it's a really, it's really just crosses the line into being absurd while still maintaining a credibility that I, I, I'm quite fond of, I think. Mm. Indeed. Yeah, so any notes or qualms that you would have liked to have brought up, guys? Only one thing that I realised while we've been talking, and there was like one small detail that I that I liked. Like at the beginning, like um, like Deidre's there and she's kind of like chatting until she comes, you know, to a point where she actually wants to sell uh, her ring for some money. Yeah. And it is it's a small detail, but you can you can see there's something like um like Mel's a bit like you're selling that. Like there's there's a tone there. And it never really explains it. But then I just realised like it's it's kind of like a green, kind of like JD colour. Yeah. And I think he's also wearing a He's got a green ring, yeah. Green ring and also like uh, the same thing on one of his belts as well. So and they never go into it, it's just like a small detail. Um, for you to kind of like pick up on, um, which I quite liked. There's a lot of uh, implicate. The film has little details that build a big picture of people. You really get people's mm. number from what is essentially a few lines of dialogue or a look or a piece of behaviour. And I like that they feel very fleshed out characters. Even the littlest ones, you get. Oh, I kind of get what they're about. Or like Abby, you mentioned the the talking down. When when Mel realizes who these like thugs are, and he can basically mention the child, we get a, quite a detailed picture of their upbringing, and so everyone feels three dimensional and deep, despite there not being actually that much information about them. Just little things, I guess, like Anthony's pointed out, that give you this humorously tragic backstory to everyone. And then there's the not so not tragic in that way, where like when. Uh, when they get told that transport's coming to pick them up to take them to see the boss, Nathaniel says that he's so excited he's hard. Oh, yeah. And well, you're just sort of like, excuse me? And he, he, he takes a minute to, like, you know, deal with that as well. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> for a crafty wank or something. Yeah, like, uh, everyone's sort of playing, they've got their role that they know, and they don't come out of character to do bits. But within their role, they've all got something funny to do. And it, it's not just, I'm being funny now. It's playing off each other in an amazing way. And that's what good improvisational roles are like, where everyone says just the right thing, whether it's written for them or not. Everyone knows what their comedy bit is to do. And it, it, like they're played just right. Like Everyone has their moment of being mm. funny and in different ways, I think. Yeah, anyone who actually has lines in this did a really good job. Yeah, like I mean, it's a small, relatively small cast, very small film, but it like it makes the best of it. And you don't often see, you know, how often do you see a film like set in like Birmingham, Alabama, that this low key like this, you know, like hmm. it's nice to be not in the obvious. Like every bloody film's in San Francisco or New York or California. I was nice to be like, oh. You know, it it is it, you know playing into the stereotypes as well of of people from down there. It must um, must be an air of you know 
making fun, but also like you know, observational comedy about these sorts of people. And uh, you know, every town has the prejudice of what people think of it, and then the reality, and that the fact is, there's going to be a mix of people either way, isn't there? And everyone's going to think different stuff about each other. So it's all about like perception of each other. It's like a nice piece about like uh, how far do I trust other people? You know. Mm. As well as being like a really solid movie that keeps your attention and makes you laugh. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's real shitter that uh, Lynn Shelton died. Really, I think she had she was just building up a good steam of momentum for like her other films as well. Like, are uh, good, but I would say th- this being her last one, she there was a higher quality to this one. Less like she'd been honing her skills as a writer director. So, like, I mean, it's really awesome to have this film of hers. But it's, I was like, oh, fuck, I could happily... I want to see the next one, and it's, it's an impossibility of the sad realities of, you know, people dying. <laughs> and it's, like, uh, it's, a, it's a big shame, because it's such a good film. I think the, you know, in another scenario, there would have been more gas in the tank. I could have happily, you know, gone into a... I have to go backwards, though. There's other films. Yeah. I get like Mark Maron. I mean, this must be a shitter for him now. <laughs> like, this must be a real fucking horror piece of tragedy. But uh, he proved himself as an actor again. I think. I think he's really got this ability to play to his strengths. And uh, mm. you know, he's—I don't know—he plays a certain character really well, and it's like slightly off of himself, isn't it? Like, mm. he's just good at. It. And like everyone, every actually, all the characters in this—they're all those. I'm gonna keep my eye out for them because like. They're bound to crop up in further comedies and stuff. So I'll be like, oh, it's the fucker from Sword of Trust. Cool, so she was good or whatever, you know. It's a solid piece, guys. Sorry it wasn't more controversial or indeed shit. What can I say? I'm a glutton for punishment and I feel bad when we have a nice time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the only other thing that we haven't mentioned is that Mark Maron did some um, acoustic guitar music throughout more or less like there's the odd other song in there but most of it is him yeah kind of what were they like uh, bluesy guitar noodling I don't know but he think he's resp- I was quite, I was quite you you mentioned like oh, do you think Mark Maron did the score I was like fuck off why would he have you would have got like an actual musician and then after I was done poo-pooing that his credits were the musician like was uh, yeah. on the music by <laughs> It's like ah fucking well done, Abby. You nailed it. You, you, you were like. I've listened to his podcast enough to recognise all those little noodles. You could say it struck a chord. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, no good. It, like it was effective enough. I noticed it a little. It wasn't intrusive, but it just gave it, a, I guess, a flavour, right? Why not? Mm. It, you know, get your partner to help you out. You fucking pricks acting in it. Get him fucking working. Give him, <laughs> give him an excuse to make a fucking get his guitar out in it. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, solid. Um, so, if you guys are happy, we can all go, you know, bargain hunting for some conspiracy theory pieces. It'd be really nice to start. Imagine being someone starting off a new conspiracy with that one artifact. Like, oh, I found an onyx egg that, you know, could have won, um, could have stopped World War Two if it had uh, not been lost to time. I don't know. Imagine. Oh, I've got a copy of. Uh, Sister Act Two on VHS I found in a in a in a store that actually proves um, the Chupacabra was real. So 
and that the Pope is actually part Chupacabra, as is explained to us in the film Sister Act 2 by Whoopi mm-hmm. Goldberg's uh, use of the word... Actually, I haven't seen... That's a, that, that might be a spoiler filled. <laughs> one, in, one of my mum's favourite films is uh, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, even more so than the first one. Sorry, I've gone down a stupid tangent. It's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Proving very much I cannot ad-lib a conspiracy theory very quickly. Useless.